Chapter Nine of Lancashire by Francis Archibald Bruton. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. The Lakes of Lancashire. The Lancashire lakes fall into four classes. The first and most interesting are the natural sheets of water formed in geological ages, partly as the result of glacial action. Such are Coniston and Esthwaite, and such smaller pools as Seathwaite Tarn, Lever's Water, Goat's Water, Boo Tarn, Blind Tarn, Tarn House, Blelham Tarn, Bawtree Tarn, Martin Mere, now little more than a moss, not to be confused with Martin Mere, which no longer exists, Erswick Tarn, and the little Horswater near Silverdale. In the second class come those natural lakes, part of whose shores are in Lancashire territory, but whose waters are outside the county. Such are Winandermere and Elterwater, and little Langdale Tarn. The county marches with the waters of these lakes, but does not claim them as its own, though in the days of the great abbey it had fishing rights on one of them at least. Next come those sheets of water, a number of them beautiful and adding beauty to the scenery, which are scattered as blue patches all over the map of Lancashire, especially in or on the borders of the industrial districts. The artificial reservoirs that have been constructed for the supply of water for drinking, for canals and for other purposes. It has been said that nowhere else in England has so much landscape beauty been provided artificially and undesignedly by the construction of great reservoirs. These sheets of water, on which you come unexpectedly in walking over moors, or which you see dotting the landscape as you look down from some escarpment, are one of the features of the county. The most beautiful, perhaps, are the three lakes of Belmont, Anglesark and Rivington, north of Bolton, and Hollingworth Lake near Littleborough. Lastly, there are the lakes in other counties that have been constructed or captured by great Lancashire towns for the use of their teeming populations. Such are Thirlmere and Horswater that have been taken by the Manchester Corporation, and Lake Vernui in Montgomeryshire, which has been specially formed to supply the wants of Liverpool. These are outside our province. From the point where the Braithy discharges its waters into Lake Windermere, down the whole western side of the lake, and up to a point on the eastern side level with the source of the Winster, the shores of Lake Windermere are in Lancashire. The historic points on the lake, Storrs Hall with memories of Scott and Wordsworth, of Southey and Canning and Christopher North, Belle Isle with its story of the Philipsons, and the knoll where Harriet Martineau's sundial still invites light to come visit me, though this last is really beyond the lake itself. These are not included. But the ferry, with its tragic story of the accident to the wedding party returning from Hawkshead in the 17th century, when nearly 50 were drowned, and Cunsey Beck singing through the woods as it carries its burden of water from Esthwaite into Windermere, babbling past the bobbin mill today, where perhaps stood the bloomeries of days gone by and beautiful Gummer's Howe, raising its wooded crest steeply above the foot of the lake to a height of over 1,000 feet, and all the charms of Cartmel Fell and Clave Heights, and the whole of the beautiful River Leven, that issues so clear from the foot of the lake and flows along its varied course to Greenodd, where Mr. Collingwood lands the Viking, whose son becomes Thorstein of Namir, till it widens to the Leven and Ulverston and Cartmel Sands. All of these are in Lancashire, Lord Avebury, in his Scenery of England, has much to say about the origin of Windermere, which he describes as a drowned river valley. He visited its outlet once with Mr. Marr, 
and he says that even a casual glance at the map suggests that the original outflow was down the Cartmel Valley, and that the present eccentric course of the water by the gorge of the Leven is due to the natural exit being blocked by drift, which raised the level of the water until it found an outflow on one side. And indeed the great depth of the lake, 219 feet, is much nearer to the north end than the south, while round the islands opposite Bowness it is seldom more than 50 feet. However, as Cartmel is also in Lancashire, his suggestion as to the former course of the outlet would leave the boundaries of the county undisturbed. I wonder whether, when the monks of the abbey were allowed a fixed number of boats on the lake for fishing, they were troubled by the water-weeds, as anglers are today, especially the weed known to the boatman as the polly. Professor Weiss, who has carefully investigated the matter, and published some practical suggestions, thinks that the weed may have been introduced in the first place by fragments adhering to the feet of waterfowl. And here let it be pointed out that the Lancashire lakes obey the same law as most of the other lakes of this district, in that their axes lie roughly north and south. For it is a curious fact that an east and west line drawn right across the district through Grasmere or Scarfell Pike would not cut a single lake, because it would run along the common watershed, a great oval boss of rock forming an axis of elevation, from which the hills with which we are concerned stretch southwards like a great claw, so that if you find yourself, we will say, as Seathwaite in the extreme west, of course we speak always of Lancashire Seathwaite, and wish to get to Windermere in the east, you must climb in succession over the digits or fingers of the claw, or make a very long detour. Between these fingers you find the long narrow lakes, and the streams that feed and drain them, all with a more or less southerly direction, and the case is similar to the north of the watershed. The lakes all occur, be it noted, in the older rocks. It will be remembered that the rocks of our lake district are among the oldest in the world. Fringing these rocks on the south is the curious belt of limestone. We do not find lakes in the limestone. Even Malham Tarn, which lies in the middle of the Yorkshire limestone, is no exception, for Malham is on a curious tongue of Silurian, the same rock that we have almost surrounding Coniston and Esthwaite and Windermere, against which the limestone is faulted. The occurrence of this belt of limestone fringing the lake country to the south may be explained in some such manner as the following. The hills of our lake district were formed long before the disturbances occurred that raised the Pennines, and were welded into a compact mass partly by volcanic action, so that when the disturbances came in the Carboniferous period, they withstood the strain, and the rocks snapped off round their base. Hence the circlet of faults that run round the district, and have thrown down the Carboniferous limestone in an almost continuous ring. On the Carboniferous rocks, so tilted, the new red sandstone was laid, which we find as a second outer fringe, as at Alithwaite and Barrow and Walney. There are some curious features round these lakes which are reminders of the glacial period. The long mounds, for example, variously called drumlins or eskers or cames in England, Ireland and Scotland respectively, which seem to be the moulds or castings of the hollows in the lower face of the glaciers, preserved for us by the drift which filled them, occur along the southeastern shore of Lake Windermere and are also found at Carnforth. Glacial action is clearly shown round Lake Esthwaite which is supposed to have reached back much further than it does now in the direction of Hawkshead Hall, a number of the hills around its head consisting of drift. 
but Esthwaite and Coniston have associations more recent than those of the glacial period. My Esthwaite was Wordsworth's term of endearment for the former, and it was round this lake, as we have seen, that his impressionable boyhood's days were passed. Oft before the hour of school, I travelled round our little lake, five miles of pleasant wandering. It is about Esthwaite that he tells that strange, weird story, in the fifth book of the Prelude, of his very first visit, in his first week, when only eight years old. As he was crossing one of those open fields which shaped like ears, make green peninsulas on Esthwaite's lake. Quite alone, he came upon the clothes of a man who had been drowned while bathing. The next day he watched the dragging of the lake for the body, saw the corpse rise suddenly upright out of the water, and, yet no soul-debasing fear, young as I was, a child not nine years old, possessed me, for my inner eye had seen such sights before, among the shining streams of fairyland, the forest of romance. Mr. Cowper has suggested that from these very ear-like promontories, or ease, to which Wordsworth has just referred, they are still a striking and pleasing feature of Esthwaite. The lake may have taken its name. Wordsworth tells of boating and of skating, when, all shod with steel, we hissed along the polished ice in games confederate, and how he would himself often retire from the throng into a silent bay, or cut across the reflex of a star that fled and flying still before me gleamed upon the glassy plain. There is a particular view on Esthwaite which Wordsworth must often have seen. Painted twenty times a week in the season, one of the natives said to me once as I was approaching it. It is the view obtained by looking up the lake from a point about two hundred yards to the west of the beck that runs out of it at the southern end. From here, writes Mr. Cowper, in his charming history of Hawkshead, we look straight up the lake, and the promontories with their trees give a delightful variety to the scene. The charm, however, is in the colouring. A summer's day should be chosen, for the foliage is the great feature, and in the distant hills about Helvellyn, which close the background, we see right through the gap of Dunmail Rays, and beyond we can just discern a blue outline, the slopes of Skiddaw. A few paces either way, and the view is lost. In the prelude, Wordsworth describes how, from under Esthwaite's splitting fields of ice, the pent-up air struggling to free itself, gave out to meadow grounds and hills a loud protracted yelling. Wordsworth tells also of two pairs of swans on Esthwaite, of the old magnificent species, which I suppose would be the Upa, in a state of nature. They divided the lake and its in and out flowing streams between them, never trespassing a single yard upon each other's separate domain. There are swans there still, and there in early spring I have watched the scalp diving one after another in perfect order, like a fleet of submarines submerging by signal. There I have seen the white satin plumage of the great crested grebe that is now beginning to frequent this northern English lake, and the tufted duck. And there I have watched the graceful redshank that has recently taken to nesting round its shores, shores that were yellow with the stars of Wordsworth's favourite flower, while from the marsh came the pleasant hum of the bleating snipe, and from the moor above you heard continually the bubbling call of the curlew, or perhaps you saw the bird standing by the lakeside, as though wondering why the tide did not go back here, as in Morecambe Bay. In the winter the great divers are sometimes seen here, and teal and pochard and shoveller and sheldrake and smew, 
and the herons and the gulls come up from Rusland Pool, that haunt of the water-loving birds. These are only some of the birds for which Esthwaite is famous. Wordsworth tells of the bittern, and even the eagle being seen in the district in his time, but only the first of these is reported now, and that but occasionally. The peregrine and the raven and the buzzard, however, are still to be seen in the Hawkshead district, in spite of a persecution which at one time was so severe that the church accounts show that between 1731 and 1796, that is, in 65 years, 421 ravens were killed and paid for at the rate of fourpence each. That is an average of more than six in a year, and in the year 1780, no less than 24 were destroyed. Wordsworth, in his scenery of the lakes, mentions seeing bunches of unfledged ravens hanging in Hawkshead churchyard. One curious gap occurs in the bird life of the Furness Fells. The skylark is almost entirely absent. On the smooth, rounded, green E's that project into Eastwaite, in the meadows round the lake where the sweet cooee-cooee of the peewit and the rich, joyous song of the redshank are familiar sounds, not a lark is seen or heard. Coming down from the Furness Fells to Cartmel, the song of the lark is one of the first things I have noted. Miss Martineau, in her Guide to the Lakes, suggests one explanation. It is a rare pleasure in the Lake District, she says, to meet with the lark. It is only on a very wide expanse of moorland that it can happen. In the valleys the birds of prey allow no songsters. Do we act wisely in entirely neglecting these old guidebooks for the new ones? The large illustrated edition of Miss Martineau's Guide is a beautiful book, and is it as generally known as it might be that quite recently Professor de Salincourt has brought out an annotated edition of Wordsworth's Scenery of the Lakes. Matthew Arnold tells of a clergyman who once asked Wordsworth if he had written anything besides this book. Esthwaite is not enclosed by lofty heights like Windermere, nor shut in by crags like Coniston but it has a quiet beauty of its own, which grows upon those who will take the trouble to discover its charms. Its very seclusion makes it a haunt of beautiful wild fowl, and the fact that one of our great poets of nature drew inspiration from it, as from a tutelary goddess, has given it a charm of association that will not die. It is round Coniston, however, that the charm of association seems chiefly to centre, and Mr. Collingwood's Thorstein has added to this a welcome touch of romance. It was to Coniston that Ruskin came as a small boy, as we may read in his boy diary. It was of Coniston that he wrote as a boy, in one of his first attempts at poetry, The Crags Alone on Coniston. It was to Coniston that he turned in his days of weakness and prostration in 1871 with the wish, If only I could lie down beneath the crags of Coniston. It was beneath the crags of Coniston that, only a few years later, he found his beautiful home, and it was precisely there that they laid him when the end came. It is by way of Coniston that Wordsworth recommended that the approach to the Lake District should be made, and it was at Brantwood that Wordsworth found the grandest view. Nowhere, wrote Miss Martineau, is the grouping of mountain peaks so striking, and of the view from Lake Bank, Mr. Collingwood says, it is one of the finest things we have for absolute unspoilt prettiness of water, wood and mountain, which reminds us that, sad to say, both Mr. Collingwood's Book of Coniston and Mr. Cowper's Guide to Hawkshead 
as well as late counties by the former, are all out of print. Finally, it was a view of the Coniston Fells that drew from Wordsworth a striking passage in the seventh book of the Prelude, much too long to quote here. It begins in line 458 with the words, A grove there is whose boughs stretch from the western marge of Thurston Mere, and it includes the declaration which seems to sum up much of what he has said about the district, in which, with the exception of some three years, his whole life was spent. Dear native regions, wheresoe'er shall close my mortal course, there will I think on you. Tennyson, it will be remembered, spent his honeymoon on the shores of this lake, and other names might be mentioned, if space allowed. It was here, for example, that Turner came in 1797, when he painted his famous picture, entitled Morning Among the Coniston Fells, which is supposed to be from a sketch taken from the head of White Gill. It was the first of his pictures to which he affixed a quotation, the lines being from the fifth book of Paradise Lost. Ye mists and exhalations that now rise from hill or streaming lake, dusty or grey, till the sun paint your fleecy skirts with gold, in honour to the world's great author, rise. As I write these words, says Ruskin at Brantwood in 1878, in his notes to this very picture, I raise my eyes to these Coniston fells and see them at this moment, imaged in their lake, in quietly reversed and perfect similitude, the sky cloudless above them, cloudless beneath, and two level lines of blue vapour drawn across the sun-lighted and russet moorlands, like an Asia fess across a golden shield. It was on the same occasion as he sat in the study that looks out of this much-loved view, where we may stand to-day, that he penned the concluding words of his introduction to the Turner catalogue. Morning breaks, as I write, along these Coniston fells, and the level mists, motionless and grey beneath the lower woods, and the sleepy village, and the long lawns of the lake shore. Oh, that someone had told me in my youth, when all my heart seemed to be set on these colours and clouds, that appear for a little while and then vanish away, how little my love of them would serve me, when the silence of lawn and wood in the dews of morning should be completed, and all my thoughts should be of those whom by neither I was to meet again. We may stand in that very room to-day, where everything is kept scrupulously as he left it, and perhaps Mr. Collingwood's picture will help us to call back the scene. In an adjoining room hang, one on each side of the boy Ruskin, the portraits of those whom he was never to meet again, by lawn or wood, who gave him all they could, and whom he idolised in return. All around are reminders of him and his life's work, his books, his sketches, his turners, his minerals, his shells and other treasures. We saw him a moment ago sitting at the table by the window writing about Turner. May we not fittingly remember here what he said about Turner, the man, one who was not easily understood by all. During the ten years I knew him, wrote Ruskin, years in which he was suffering most from the evil speaking of the world, I never heard him say one depreciating word of any living man or man's work. I never saw him look an unkind or blameful look. I never knew him let pass, without sorrowful remonstrance or endeavour at mitigation, a blameful word spoken by another. Of no man but Turner, whom I have ever known, could I say this. I visited the homes and haunts of many great men and women in many lands, Dante, Shakespeare, Goethe, Schiller, Carlyle, and a host of others. But as I walked away from Brantwood, 
it seemed to me that i never before realised so fully how the preservation of these homes and haunts helps us to realise the men themselves perhaps it was due partly to the fact that there was still a living loving hand that was keeping everything exactly as it had been in his time perhaps it was the first sight of things of which you had heard and read so much but here in these rooms looking out on his much-loved landscape you seemed actually to meet him this apostle of beauty of moral beauty quite as much as of physical beauty this revealer and expounder of the work of artists of medieval and modern times here you stood amid the beautiful works he had collected of artists that he worshipped the works of his own hand the works of nature that he adored and you seemed to feel the virtue that went out of him this man who not only stirred up the gift that was in him but let it stream out as a guide and an inspiration to millions who unearthed for all time so many priceless yet for us hitherto hidden treasures who if he criticised criticised no one more severely than himself in the little cemetery on the other side of the lake he lies where he longed to lie and in the village beyond stands the museum which is his memorial End of chapter 9